Uh, This morning we're in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Uh, If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 9? And uh, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this part of God's Word? Uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Pay careful attention, this is God's word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly A light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. We pray that the same spirit who inspired Luke as he recorded these things, the same spirit who opened the blind eyes of the Apostle Paul, made him new, uh, would now illumine our hearts and minds. Bring your word to bear on our hearts and bear in us the fruit that you desire. Help us to receive it in faith and in love, to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives, all for the glory of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. 
We love uh, origin stories. Uh, the movies are filled with uh, stories of how heroes came to be who they are today. Uh, and so in the last decade especially, it seems like every other movie that comes out is some sort of movie about you know, how somebody came to be who they are, how some hero came to the place where they are. We love to answer the question, what makes a person who they are? What influences and events shape them? Very often these, these stories, these origin stories, focus on some major event where a switch is flipped, the course of life is changed, or very often it's just simply things that have been simmering for some time come to a boil. The book of Acts, in some ways, as a whole, can be read as an origin story. It's telling us the story of the early church, the continuing works of Jesus through his people, his witnesses, as they carried the good news of the resurrection all over the Roman Empire at that point. It's the origin story of the Christian church, in some ways. And certainly in this passage, we see... Uh, perhaps one of the most famous origin stories, or probably we are more used to calling it a conversion story. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the once fierce oppressor of Jesus and his people, who meets Christ on the road to Damascus, is converted from opposition to Christ to being brought into Jesus, brought into faith in Christ, and made part of his church, and then sent out... Uh, as uh, perhaps the most effective, certainly one of the most famous missionaries in the early church. Just as a note, uh, we call him Saul, we call him Paul. There's no real major distinction between what you call him. Uh, don't think of Paul as his Christian name and Saul as his non-Christian name. It was common for people to have a Hebrew name and a Roman name and to go by one or the other depending on the situation. So I may call him Saul. In the sermon, I may call him Paul. We're all talking about the same guy. It doesn't matter which name you use. But here we find Saul, Saul of Tarsus, a quite, if you will, unexpected convert, encountering Jesus, an expectant and intentional Savior. And we see Saul completely changed as a result of this encounter with Jesus and with the grace of God in Christ. And so this morning, what I'd like for us to do is just walk through this narrative of Saul's conversion, Saul's encounter with the risen Jesus, and see how God was at work in it. We'll see how Jesus flipped the switch, changed the course in Saul's life, bringing him literally and figuratively, physically and spiritually, out of darkness and into the light of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. So let's look at the story. First, we see uh, very simply Saul hates Jesus. Saul hates Jesus. Look at verses one and two, this description. We've moved from Philip at the end of chapter eight, going around preaching the good news where the Lord had led him. Now in chapter nine, verse one, but Saul. Notice the way Saul is described here. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. In and out, this is what's consuming him, this hatred for Jesus, hatred for particularly Jewish people who were claiming that Jesus was the long-promised 
Messiah who had died and who had risen. The description that's given here highlights Saul's hatred. When it talks about his breathing threats and murder, the word there is often used to describe a war horse snorting for battle. You can picture the horse scraping the ground and just breathing. I don't know if horses get angry, but they certainly get riled up. And Luke is telling us Paul is riled up. He is full of anger and hatred toward Jesus and toward those who claim the name of Jesus. Luke has been kind of dropping hints for us along the way that there's this guy Saul, that he's going to be important and that he's not a good guy. Uh, And he's the only one mentioned when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is killed. The only one named is this guy named Saul who's standing by holding the coats of those who are throwing stones to kill Stephen. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, before we move into Samaria with Philip and and those who had scattered from persecution, we're told that Saul is going around Jerusalem ravaging houses, bringing out men and women who were claiming faith in Jesus. And now this hatred is just kind of bubbling over. It's like snorting like a war horse. He's breathing threats and murder against those who are following Jesus. Notice, too, that this hatred, this zeal of Paul's is expanded beyond Jerusalem. He is so angry, so full of rage over these Christians, these followers of Jesus, that he goes to the high priest in Jerusalem and he gets letters from them, giving him authority to go about 150 miles away from Jerusalem to Damascus to go to the synagogues to find these Jewish Christians who were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah and giving him authority to bind them and bring them essentially into some form of prison. He's so angry, he's looking 150 miles away from Jerusalem to Damascus and thinking, somebody somewhere is wrong, and I've got to do something about it. He gets authority, these letters from the high priest to go to Damascus. Notice as well, his anger is aimed at followers of Jesus, but it's indiscriminate, men and women. He's, in some ways, orphaning children, taking away their parents who are following Jesus. He's he's full of rage, full of anger and hostility toward Jesus, which begs the question, or doesn't beg the question, it raises the question, why? Why does Saul hate Jesus? Why is he so full of rage here? Some of it has to do with Saul's worldview, his training as a Pharisee and his understanding, his belief of the hope of Israel. For Saul and for many other Jews in the first century, the claim that Jesus was the Messiah was highly offensive uh, because the Messiah, the promised Christ, was to be one who came and represented all of Israel. And so for the followers of Jesus to claim that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was put to death on a Roman cross, which meant that he was cursed by God, that in some ways was saying to Saul, if you have a cursed Messiah, then that means that Israel is cursed as well. And that didn't fit with Saul's view of how you become right with God. Saul's view, Paul's view, as you can read later in in his letter to the Philippians, when he looked at himself, 
He didn't see himself as a miserable sinner in need of grace. He didn't see himself as falling short of God's standard. How does Paul describe himself in the letter to the Philippians? He says, with regard to the law, I was blameless. I was blameless. He's not looking for help. He views himself as having done what God requires of him. He views his value as wrapped up in his credentials, his achievements, his ability to have done what was right. And so when he hears these Jewish people claiming that Jesus is the Messiah and that he died on a cross and was essentially cursed by God and yet somehow he's been raised from the dead, it strikes right at the heart of who Paul thinks he is and his own view of himself and where his value and his identity is. Because all of a sudden, if Jesus is the promised Messiah and he's been cursed by God, then Saul all of a sudden understands that means that my sin needs to be dealt with in the same way. And that struck at the heart of who Saul thought he was. Saul's view of himself was that he was a law keeper and that that was enough. And so in some ways, we we all kind of do this. We avoid dealing with our sin, or we avoid in some ways dealing with who Jesus is because we don't want to deal with our sin and vice versa. There's a a book by Flannery O'Connor called Wise Blood. It's kind of a weird book. I'm not sure I can recommend it to you, but it's a good book. There's your recommendation. Um, in the, in the book, the, the main character in Wise Blood has this interesting statement where he says, uh, he's kind of thinking about why people avoid doing bad things. So some people avoid doing bad things because they don't want to get in trouble. Uh, they don't want to, you know, they want to have a decent life and they know if they do bad things, they can't have a decent life. And for the main character in Wise Blood, uh, he says that he avoids doing bad things. He avoids sin because he does not want to deal with Jesus. He wants to avoid Jesus. In some ways, Saul is dealing with the same thing. To to accept, for Saul, to accept that Jesus is the promised Messiah is to accept that he has fallen short, that that his righteousness is not enough, that his law-keeping is not enough, and that he is in deeper need of grace from God and a righteousness outside of himself than he ever could have imagined. And that was offensive to Saul and filled him with rage. And so out he goes to Damascus to assault, arrest these Christians claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet on the way, what happens? Saul, who hates Jesus, meets Jesus and in an instant is radically changed. How ironic, on the way to Damascus to arrest those who claim the name of Jesus, Saul encounters the very one whom he hated. Notice the way Luke describes it. Suddenly, in verse 3, a light from heaven flashed around him, falling to the ground. He hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul meets Jesus. He meets Jesus in such a way that he can no longer deny that Jesus is who he claims to be. He can no longer deny that those who are following Jesus are right, that what they are claiming is true, because now Saul has met the one who died, 
the one who rose again, the one who is now ascended and appearing to him on the road to Damascus. And Saul finds out that to attack the church is to attack, to persecute Jesus himself. So Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He falls to the ground, is confronted with who Christ is, and Jesus simply tells him, go into the city and you'll be told what to do. Notice the irony in the story. Saul, thinking that he was the one who had spiritual insight, was actually spiritually blind. And now his physical condition catches up with his former spiritual condition. He is blinded by the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Helps us understand, I think, in some ways why in 2 Corinthians, Paul describes salvation in these terms of light and darkness. Saul had nothing in himself to commend himself to Christ. In fact, he had everything kind of going against him. He's full of hatred. He's against Jesus. He's against those who follow Jesus. He is spiritually blind. He is living in spiritual darkness. And then, boom, the light of God's glory knocks him down, physically blinds him. And that's the way he describes in 2 Corinthians his own salvation. The God who said, let light shine in darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts the light of the glory so that we may see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Saul has to see his spiritual blindness in order to see his need for Jesus. And so the light of God's glory leaves him physically blind so that he might no longer be spiritually blind. Saul hates Jesus, but Saul meets Jesus. He sees for the first time who Jesus is. And I think there's some indication here that Saul sees his sin for the first time for what it is. It's it's maybe hinted at more than it is explicit, but notice in verse 9, he's led by hand because he can't see uh, into Damascus, For three days, he's without sight. He can't see, and he neither ate nor drank. I think there's some indication here that Saul is fasting deliberately. Maybe he's in shock. That's certainly a legitimate way to take that. He's coming to grips with what's just happened to him. It's a complete 180 uh, reversal in his life. But I think there's some indication that he is so humbled by this encounter with Jesus that he fasts as a way of mourning and repenting over his own sin. Perhaps Saul had his own objections. How could Jesus rescue him? How could this one whom he hated, this one whom he was persecuting by persecuting his people, how could this one whom he had hated rescue him in such a way? Bring him out of darkness into light. Perhaps Saul had his own objections, but, but I've done this. But, but remember what I did. And, and Jesus' response to him as to all sinners is, but God, but God is gracious. God does not hold sins against you when you come to Jesus. God does not leave his judgment hanging over your head when you come to Jesus. It has all been satisfied In Christ, the penalty for sin, the righteousness that God requires, Saul, this most unexpected convert, meets Jesus, the expectant and unreluctant Savior, who is in the business of rescuing sinners, even though those who are 
against him. Saul meets Jesus, and Jesus rescues Saul. He uses Ananias. Notice verses 10 through uh, near the end of our section. You have this interesting interaction between Jesus and Ananias. Not only is Saul changed in his interaction with Jesus, but Ananias has to adjust a little bit as well. Uh, we don't know anything more about Ananias except that the Lord uses him as his uh, ambassador here to go to, to Saul. But you can imagine the conversation as we have it explicitly written out for us here. You see Ananias' reluctance. Ananias, it's Jesus. Go get Saul. Uh, there's a man named Saul. He's waiting on you. He's expecting you. And um, Ananias is like, ah, I think I know this guy. I've heard this name. Is this the same one? He knows. And even Ananias has these objections. Don't you know what he's done? Don't you know why he's here? He's, he's here to do damage, to do evil to your people. And yet Jesus says, uh, in essence, that he is a savior who loves to save people in such a way to show that it is all of grace and not anything we bring to the table. He tells Ananias that Saul is his chosen instrument, that Jesus has chosen Saul. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy, which you, you may have read during the prelude, that God was merciful to him, Christ was merciful to him, because he acted in ignorance, and he showed mercy to Paul, this zealous persecutor of the church, in many ways to give an example of how Jesus can save anyone, that he, that he can show mercy to anyone regardless of how bad they have been, regardless of how desperate their situation is, that he is a God of grace, and that Christ loves to save people in such a way that shows it's not them, that it's him. And if anybody was in that situation, it was Saul. Uh, we read again in Philippians where Paul kind of lays out his credentials. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was zealous. Uh, I was blameless with regard to the law, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. If anybody had credentials that would make them right with God, he was the one. But what does he say about all of that? It says, when he met Jesus, when he came into union with Christ, he realized that all of those things that he thought were pluses were actually negatives. And he viewed them all as loss in comparison with the surpassing value of knowing Jesus and sharing in his suffering and in the power of his resurrection. Saul said that none of it got me a foot in the door with Jesus. None of it got me two steps closer than somebody else. All of it was like a pile of rubbish. Because what I need is not a righteousness that I can earn. What I need is a righteousness that only Christ can give. And the good news is that Jesus has done everything needed for our salvation. And those who trust in him have all the righteousness that they need to stand before God. And his cross counts for them as the penalty for sin and is enough for forgiveness. The Lord saves in such a way to show that it is all of grace. And sometimes the Lord saves in such a way that he uses the most hostile in order to be the most effective witness. And so the Lord tells Ananias here, 
Saul is chosen, that he is the one who will declare, carry the name of Jesus before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, which is exactly what Saul ends up doing. Notice verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I think it's important here to note that this is not Jesus' way of saying, I'm going to punish Saul for all the bad things he did so that as he follows me, he's just going to suffer all the time. This This is special for Saul. Rather, what Jesus is saying is what what Paul says later, that by sharing in the suffering of Jesus, for the sake of his name, as a witness to his resurrection, we also at the same time share in the power of his resurrection. We die with Jesus. We're conformed to his death as we put sin to death in our own lives. And then we also live with Jesus and experience the power of his resurrection the only power that can bring us out of darkness and into light. Jesus wasn't punishing Saul by saying, he's going to suffer for my name. He was making him promise that he would suffer and experience the joy of Jesus's resurrection power. Jesus rescues Saul through Ananias, laying his hands upon him, scales falling from his eyes, saying to him those words which must have been so sweet Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, sent me to regain your sight and fill you with the Holy Spirit, that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus rescues Saul. And finally, you see at the end, as Jesus rescues Saul, Saul proclaims Jesus. What an ironic twist in this story. At the beginning, Saul is bent towards Damascus, full of anger, full of rage, full of hatred for Jesus and his people, with the sole aim of going into Damascus with with this authority from the high priest to bind men and women, followers of the Lord, to haul them off. And what does he do when he gets to the synagogues in Damascus? Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. I think it's safe to assume that if Ananias knew Saul's agenda, you know, I know who this guy is. He's here to arrest us and, and to mistreat us. That if Ananias knew that, then probably the Christians who were gathering still in the synagogues, uh, they probably knew it as well. So you can imagine the scene when he shows up. Maybe some have heard what's happened. Maybe some have not. And he comes in, and they're expecting hostility. They're expecting him to still be an enemy full of rage against Jesus and his church. And what does he do? Brothers, Jesus is the son of God. He proclaims Jesus, the very one whom he had hated and then met along the road to Damascus. It's a wonderful, ironic twist because it's the twist of God's grace. We may in some ways look at, look at Saul, Paul, and say, what an unexpected conversion. And, and yet maybe that's not the way we ought to think about it. We, we tend to think that something is unexpected because it doesn't meet the requirements of, of how it ought to work. We think maybe sometimes the person who's going to be converted is the person who has, you know, checked all the boxes, They've maybe done enough. They kind of fit the mold. And that's who Jesus is going to convert. That's who Jesus is going to save. That's who Jesus is going to use. 
But the reality is we, we all in some ways should be unexpected converts because we're all disqualified in ourselves. Uh, Saul is no more disqualified than any of us are because of our sin. Yet the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is not an unexpected Savior. He's not a reluctant Savior. He's not just kind of looking for those who are on the edge of good enough, and then he's going to go after them and bring them onto his team. Jesus is in the business of saving sinners, saving those who hate him, saving those who think they know him but they don't. He's in the business of saving sinners, all of whom because of their sin, are outside of qualifications for the kingdom of God. But the good news is that Jesus is our qualification. Jesus is the one who has done all things necessary to save us. And like Saul, we all must find out that our hope, our righteousness, is all in Christ. So wherever you may be this morning, maybe indifferent, uh, maybe hostile, Uh, maybe still kind of wondering what this is all about, Uh, the main thing we all need to hear is that Christ is a great Savior and that all who are in him have all that they need to stand before God with confidence, fully forgiven, and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. If his righteousness can cover the anger and hatred of Saul, it can cover over any unrighteousness because God is merciful So may we praise God for the power of Christ and his gospel, that if you're still breathing, even if it's threats and murder, you still have life and you're still not too far gone from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You're still able to hear and to come, to turn and to look to Jesus. So may we come to him this morning. Would you pray with me?